This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Elizabeth McCracken, author of the novel, The Hero of This Book. And that mostly what I say, tell people is buck up. Like that would be my craft book. And nobody really wants a craft book that just says buck up or oh, for God's sake. We'll be back with Elizabeth McCracken after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, 
writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is short story writer, novelist, and nonfiction author Elizabeth McCracken. She is the author of eight books, including the short story collection Thunderstruck and Other Stories, which won the 2015 Story Prize. Some of her other titles include The Giant's House, An Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination, Bowl Away, and Niagara Falls All Over Again. She has received grants and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, among others. McCracken's new novel, The Hero of This Book, takes place 10 months after the narrator's mother has died. She is on a trip to London, a city that was a favorite for the narrator and her mother. As she wanders the streets, she finds herself reflecting on her mother's life, their relationship, and who her mother was as an individual in the world as much as she could understand. Thoughts of the past meld with questions of the future in this novel, which sharply examines grief, contradiction, the limits of knowing another human, living in the world as an artist, and matters of the body. We began the discussion with Elizabeth McCracken discussing the genesis of the novel. I was in London with my family, and my mother had died the year before. Uh, And I was trying to write some short stories. And one of the, I was trying to write a particular short story that was not getting off the ground. Um, And one of the things that I have discovered as I've gotten older is that if I'm really struggling with something, like there's never been any ease or happiness in writing it, it's not going to be any good. Um, That I need, at least in while composing, some sort of sense of fluidity. And I actually, I saw a friend of mine who said, oh, yes, I've got a small auto-fictional novel coming out soon. And even though I had never had the urge to write such a thing, suddenly it was all I wanted to do in the entire world. And because I had been walking around London and thinking of my mother, with whom I had been in London um, a few years beforehand, and I, I, I started to write about it. Not And... In the very early versions of it, it was much more fictional. The mother in it was totally n- nothing like my own mother, but I couldn't I couldn't make it move. And so pretty quickly, I started to write about my mother, and it was really such a pleasure. I just I felt so motivated every morning to get up and write that um that I ended up writing this book. And it th- the first version of it was. Even once it was be, it was more like my mother. There was, it was going to be like a half of writing manual, and I was writing lots of notes, and um, and those eventually went by the wayside. How would you describe autofiction to someone who's never heard the term before? In your like, what you think it is? Do you know? I honestly don't entirely know what it is. 
it's a beautiful term. You know, it sounds a little like uh, the French for self-portrait, um, which I will not try to pronounce with a French accent, but it is auto-portrait. And so it seems, I, I think part of it is, is that certainly when I was younger, there people would always ask everybody, like, is your work autobiographical? And I feel like we all sort of thought we were supposed to say no. And my early work was not particularly autobiographical, but that saying saying that your work was autobiographical seemed like a strange thing to say, made, made it less than fiction or something. And that was at a time where, when we were sort of encouraged to write you know, more, I don't know who this we is, but I'm saying we were encouraged to write more realistic fiction anyhow. I, I don't, I honestly don't really know what autofiction is. It's, a, it's, it's certainly, it's not only autobiographical fiction, but maybe fiction that doesn't work hard to cover up the source material, doesn't try to anonymize its characters. I don't know. You have any idea what it is? No, but maybe it always has to have someone named Trevor in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to. Yeah. I guess the thing is, I don't really care. I don't know yeah. if you do. No, I don't. Maybe the other thing I think about autofiction is, generally speaking, people who write autofiction write more than one volume of it. I'm just sort of like thinking of Rachel Cusk and um, Nausgaard and like it's supposed to be like this project and and uh, and I have I know that I'm this is like a one-off book for me. So I don't know. Yeah, I feel like if I were to write it what it would offer me is sort of this release from my journalism background, where if someone mm -hmm. came to me and said, you didn't have this conversation on November 5th, it was on November 6th, <laughs> then I just don't have to defend that. Right. And maybe there's yes. liberation in that. I think there is, although I also think that there's plenty of like actual autofiction that kind of embraces the boringness, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I'm like, I. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but that 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 things that are dull are like are like realistic in like life. You said that you toward, sort of wanted to make this also a craft manual. Where did you see the marriage of that, and how did you realize it had to be divorced? Mitzi, it's a good question. I think that that part of it was that in order for me to write the book, I somehow had to be had to tell myself it was more than one kind of book. And also, you know, over the years, because I've taught for years, people have said to me, you ever thought about writing a craft book? And I always say, you know, I, if I put everything down, I knew it wouldn't be, wouldn't fill out a whole book. And that mostly what I say, tell people is buck up. Like that would be my craft book. And nobody really wants a craft book that just says buck up <laughs> or, oh, for God's sake. So I started, I started, and I, so I, I thought, well, here's a chance. I don't need to have to fill out a whole book. And that somehow I thought it was okay to write that directly about my mother. Cause the, the mother in the book is, is a very close version of my mother. And it was okay if then I like had footnotes or endnotes or something that undercut it or that you know, spoke to it. And also when I teach, I really, believe in looking at the work of the writer you're teaching and like all of my interesting thoughts about writing when as a teacher for me come when I'm reading somebody else's work 
So I sort of thought, okay, so I'll use my text and then I will think of things to say. And uh, I gave it to a couple of people to read, um, including my friend Paul Osicki, who is like the most supportive and, and gentle of readers. And he actually clutched his head <laughs> when he was trying to talk about the notes. And part of that was is because the tone of them was intensely crabby. I was thinking, well, I need the voice to be a little bit different. So that was part of it. But also part of my realization was that there was no way to do it and not have it the book be in two pieces and not have there to be some sort of coda after reading the narrative of the woman walking through London and thinking about her mother. That it would, I couldn't do, I didn't want footnotes because I don't think people read um, the way I wanted them to read this book if the book had footnotes. Um, and I thought about in the margin and I thought about endnotes and I briefly thought about printing it upside down so that the book had two front covers. But no matter what it was, it seemed like it was it would undercut that narrative. And I didn't want that. Yeah, I mean, it's probably like someone's giving you advice. If you need to put something upside down in your book, it might not belong in there. <laughs> Seems like sound advice, actually. But you could put that in your crabby craft book. I mean, maybe your next book is just a crabby craft book. Yeah, maybe it is. I think it is good advice if you can't if you cannot figure out how to get something into your book, then it doesn't belong there. So one of the things that's so beautiful is that at the beginning you have a photograph of a book that you signed to your mother, but it wasn't in your possession. How did you get this? I still sort of can't believe it. So my parents had a house that was crammed full of stuff, including a lot of books and my brother and I went and cleared it out. And I actually took, I had, there were tons of books of mine in boxes in the basement and I shipped them back to my, to myself. Um, and then I, after I'd already written a draft of the hero of this book, I got a message from a stranger on Instagram saying that she was in a hotel in Baltimore, I think. And she, it was one of those places that was like decorated with, books that had been bought by the pound and she had pulled this book off and she said is this you and it it was a copy of my first book inscribed just to my mother not to my parents and it was for mother's day uh so may 1993 and it said it says for mom whose life history i will continue to mine but who will never no matter what else no matter what she or anybody else thinks appear as a character in my work being too good for the likes of me and my characters. It, it's the first book I ever signed to anybody. It, it's like from about a month before the book actually came out. Um, and the woman said, is this you? And I said, is there any way you would mail that back to me? And she did. Um, she just, I think, slipped it out of, I don't know whether she told the hotel she was taking it or not. And it didn't have its jacket. And at first I thought, like, is this a message from beyond the grave saying you signed a contract? <laughs> and then I was talking to my to my friend Anne and she said, oh, I think it's just your mother laughing because it's very funny. And I said, yeah, I think that's right. And I was very happy when I thought, oh, it seemed, it seemed sort of faded when I realized that I could use that as the dedication in this book. Yeah, and this is such a beautiful like homage to your mother, the fictional mother of this novel. 
she is such a singular person. She is so unique and like rambunctious in certain ways and just really dedicated to the deep sense of belief that she has. And I'm wondering what it felt like a year later to write, like to really bring her back to life. And if it changed how you thought about your future or your past. Yeah, I think, I think it has changed my feelings about quite a few things. It's, yeah, it's not that uncommon when somebody dies for a writer to want to write about that person. And I do think some people find it very cold blooded somehow, but I think for those of us who do it, it feels like a way of keeping the person close um, and a, a chance to really think about that person in a way that you couldn't when they were alive. And I'm always aware if, I, if I'm writing about anything that's about my own life, that with every month that passes, you would write a different book. You know, every, and I, for this book, I did in fact think, oh yeah, I don't actually want to wait any longer. And I also, it wasn't just a year after her death. It was in the month following the memorial service that we held for her. Um, so she was feeling quite close. The thing that has interest that has changed for me is that I was at, I was very nervous about when I was writing this book about writing about my mother. And there's a ton of stuff uh, that I thought, oh, I'm really brave for writing this. And now I, I'm like, what? It's not so, that was not an act of bravery. And I was worried, I think, about what family members might say. And there's a lot of that wrestling in the book. And now I sort of think, oh, I, I want to write about people I know. Because it is a way of, of keeping them close, but also introducing them to people. I was just talking to the uh, writer and artist Reva Lehrer, um, who had this amazing book called Gillum Girl. And she was talking about, she was, she was quoting somebody, I think, talking about the three deaths, that first you die when the body stops, and then when the body is put in the ground, and then when the last person who knows you speaks your name. And she was talking about she's, some of her own relatives, um, who she's thinking, you know, she's the last person who can speak of them uh, and that there's something about sending, I can't remember what she said, something about the river of stories, sending stories about people you know out into the world. And I do, having written this book, I it, that it doesn't feel like such a suspicious activity as I felt it was beforehand. Yeah. And people who knew my mother have written me really lovely notes. And I was sort of worried about the people who knew my mother, not as a member of our family, but, you know, who worked for her and, and knew her. You write in the very beginning that all mothers are unknowable. And I'm curious about what brought you to this sentence, how you sought to know your mom on the page, and how do you think your kids know you? It's an interesting question. I will say that the next line is being a subset of people. Um, but I do think, I think, I think people believe that, that mothers are somehow hard to know or that it is a mother's duty to be a certain way with children. And I think it probably is true, you know, that it's a, it's parents' jobs to have a slightly 
And I don't even want to say that. I'm interrupting myself because I think everybody has a different feeling about parenting, just like everybody has a different feeling about writing. And when it comes to writing, I have a strong feeling that there's advice that is good advice if it's good advice for you. But if you get advice that's not good for you, it's absolutely worthless. But I, I yeah, I think it, it can be hard to know mothers, even though in some ways I feel like I knew my mother very well. But in other ways, I, I, I'm very aware that I know the part of her who showed her face to me. And do you feel like that your children would say the same? I don't know. I think it is actually quite good for children to be not that interested in their parents. Yeah, I feel that I feel that quite firmly that it's good to to have a basic lack of curiosity about your parents in their lives. It's interesting though cuz you said at least in the book the mother was not very interested in the inner life of her daughter and that it was it was stated very clearly like just not interested which gave the main character a lot of freedom I think as a childhood child to do and be and think whatever but also it seems like it was in there also for a reason yeah i mean maybe it may it may be a familial thing i do think that also parents even though as a parent i often look at my children and, and think i want you to tell me everything that you're thinking um but i don't think that's a good stance and i always and i apologize for anybody who hears this uh, and is this sort of person, whenever anybody says that their parents are their best friends, I think, ugh, <laughs> no. There are things that you should tell your best friends that you would never tell your parents. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in the in the family that I come from and the family who is in this book, there's a certain aspect of privacy that means you don't put your fingers into the thoughts of people you're related to. One of the senses I got from this when I closed it at the end was like, wow, this is really just a book of contradictions. It's full of paradoxes and full of, I'm going to say this, and a few pages later, I'm going to say this, which is, which is really the nature of life that I think as human beings, we are not comfortable confronting the paradoxes that we are. Like, for instance, you say early on, the narrator says, you know, applying any words to who I am feels like a straight pin aimed at my insect self. I won't do it. I can't do it. And then later, in it's sort of a different way, the writer says she understands things by translating them into words. So that seems to indicate that there is some reach for understanding and there is a reach for definition. But I found this happened so much when she talked about herself, when she talked about her mom, when she talked about writing advice. And does my read of that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes total sense. The The one that I think of, and it has to do, I think, with that question about knowing another person, is there's, at one point she says, she there's, her mother is very stiff and she invents this method, she says, the narrator, called the foot jack, in which she would, to help her mother get upstairs, she would put her foot under her mother's foot and lift her whole leg and put it on the next step. And early on, she says, in that way, she understood what it was like to be in her mother's body. And then at the end of the book, it says, um, when she does that, she she doesn't know what it's like to be in her mother's body. She only knows how it feels to to her to move her mother's leg like that. 
and I do sort of think that's the nature of knowing people. But I did, I did like the idea. I can't say that I did it on purpose exactly in the first draft, but of it being like life, that you believe something passionately at one point, and then it's exact opposite, like really soon afterwards. And that all of your deeply held beliefs could be the opposite, especially when you're trying to think about kind of ineffable things. And I think I do that. I've done that in drafts of my fiction and people will kindly and accurately say, you can't have a character who says this on this page and the exact exact opposite later on. Uh, and in my, my other novels, I have fixed it so that there's some consistency of character. And I just, in the, in, in this book, I just didn't fix it. I sort of like, like the idea, but yeah, I think you're, I think that's a, that's a great read. That's maybe that's one of the things that autofiction lets you do is it lets you be that, um, that human that is always changing. Like I, I interviewed Andrea Barrett recently and she said to me, you know, I'm 68 years old. And when I was young, I thought I knew everything there was to know. And when I was in middle age, I thought I knew everything. And now I realize like that I know nothing. And I think that's part of like admitting that to ourselves. It's like, yeah. we think we know everything. And even if you make some statement, it, it that's like nothing. I, I don't know anything about the world, but I know that I love bobby pins. Like, right. there will come a day right. when you don't like the bobby pin. Yep. But, but it's interesting that that's not allowed in more traditional fiction. Yeah. And maybe, you know, because there are fashions in fiction and fashions in editing, and it's possible that if I did it, because I don't, I don't think that my, my editor, in fact, I know my editor for this book, Alan Atzma, is wonderful, did not suggest that I, that I fix those. But it is, it is true that, I mean, it's true that the most complicated character in fiction has about 5% of the life force and complexities and contradictions of even the most boring actual human being. You can't actually get a, a human being on the page in a novel, I don't think. I mean, Hamlet was pretty uncertain about things, but yeah. One of the things you say, because you are talking about craft, is you say, I don't believe in craft. I'm only one person. Every one person is allowed their own story. And I think this could be very liberating for people who are coming for craft advice. Is like, there is that advice. You can't make a character like make different decisions until you can. And do you find that hard to maybe impart to students because they're looking for the answer? I sometimes do have students who beg me for rules. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. The rule that fiction has, the rules that fiction has are what every individual piece has. That when, and I may have said this to you before, um, let's see, that when a story is failing, it's not because it's breaking general rules, but because it's breaking rules that it's set up for itself. And that that's what makes something fall apart. So, and I also, every time I think I have a firm rule, and it's usually about process, it's usually like, oh, you should try to write your first draft in a relatively short period of time, or, oh, I think you should write page, you know, page one the end page if you're writing a draft of a novel 
that then somebody who's written a brilliant book will explain that they never did it that way. I go, oh, well, there's there's another rule I had that, that doesn't apply. I was wondering if this book was a loophole in some of the rules, like in what you set up to your mom and in, in what you wrote that, that she's not going to be part of your book, that if somehow like auto fiction made it okay for you to write about her. Yeah, I mean, this book is nothing but loopholes, basically. <laughs> um, I do think that it's true that there, there are no firm rules in fiction. I also feel like the older I get, the more I think that the, the goal is to try to make yourself as unconstrained as a writer as you can. To not have, or at least not to have the constraints that other people might put on your book to, to cast those ideas aside. And when I was trying to decide whether I was going to write a memoir or a novel um, at the very start of this project, and I decided to write a novel, and I'm sure this is another loophole, like I would describe this book as a novel about writing a memoir, but it's not a memoir. But early on, I was sort of thinking, well, you know, if it's a novel, it can do this. Um, and if it's a memoir, it can do this. And if it's a novel, it has to do this. And it's a memoir. If it's a memoir, it has to do that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write a novel. And then as I started, I realized, why did I think all of those things were so that novels do this and memoirs do that? And they have to do this, can do that, because it's not true. Um, and it was a great pleasure to sort of go, oh, yeah, no, never mind. Those aren't rules. I get to do what I want in this book and I can, and I get to call it what I want too. I mean, I definitely got a sense from the book too, that your sensibility of the world um, came very deeply from your mother. I'm sure your father too, but he's less in there. She was so feisty and so determined. And so like, as I was saying earlier, like singular about the things that she believed, she seemed to have this zest for life. And yet she had this body that was, compromised. You know, she had to walk with canes early on and eventually a walker and then a wheelchair. And I'm wondering, I guess, how much you think that played into her singularity? You know, I think it is hard to, and I think I, the book says something like this, it's almost impossible to unpick the circumstances of our lives from who we end up being and i do think my having the body that she had in america starting from or you know just in the world starting from 1935 which is the year that she was born and ongoing um was good training for being stubborn uh that you know that she was i think and she was also she was jewish in small town iowa at a, at a time where being Jewish meant there were, you know, there were still, there were quotas at Harvard, I heard on the radio this morning for Jews up until the late 60s. So I think that the, she knew she wanted to do things and, you know, it's like weightlifting. The more resistance you have, the, the stronger you get. And she encountered a lot of resistance to, to living the life the way, her life the way she wanted to. So in that sense, yeah, I do think I do think um, it had a lot to do with her character. But also, you know, 
when I think of my mother, I think of her as a piece. And that's, I do think that sometimes when we talk about with people with disabilities, people think of them like, oh, there's the person and then there's the disability in a way that I think is kind of ugly and doesn't make sense. You know, they're, they're a person and this is a description that attaches to them. But I do, yeah, I, my mother comes in one piece to me. I was really curious because I felt this before it was even addressed in the book that the narrator of this book had no shame or embarrassment about her mother, like going out in public. And I think that we sometimes in our insecurities as children, we just want to look like everybody else. We want our family to look like everybody else. And your narrator did not have that. I'm assuming that you didn't have that either. And it didn't even realize until like seventh grade, someone pointed that out to her, like that her mother was different or crippled or something like that. And it was like this washed over her by this realization. But I also think that that sort of lack of shame or embarrassment takes maybe a strong will to not have this desire to fit in with everybody else and wanted to ask you about that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I can... The idea of my family looking like other families was not a possibility. I, you know, my father was six foot three and quite large. I think if there were a will imposed, it was in fact my mother's, but I, I honestly don't remember feeling shame or embarrassment around my family um, and wishing, wishing to conform in any way. Yeah, because that doesn't come from inside of ourselves. That comes from society, which is wrong. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. The sense of embarrassment and and wanting to be like other people. And I think part of it, what is, you know, my I I come from a family, not just my parents, but their parents and aunts and uncles and cousins, just full of of eccentrics, and and people who had no intention of conforming or you know worrying about how they fit in. I, and I, I will say that it has never been a particular urge of mine to fit in. But I, yeah, I think it's the oxygen I breathed. It was, I, I'm also just like a remarkably unobservant person. So that like, if somebody was like looking at me and my parents as though they noticed that they didn't look like other parents, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have noticed. But it's interesting because your character says, I felt most conspicuous when most invisible the terror of suddenly springing into view. Yeah, I, I have a I have a line in a story I wrote a while ago um, about somebody saying that he, something like he was like most people, he believed that everybody was looking at him and that he was invisible at the same time, which I do think is that sort of, is the human, the human condition of being terribly self-conscious about whether people are looking at you and at the same time having no notion that anybody would ever be looking at you. I know that you're all, you've always been interested in writing about the body and you have this just beautiful chapter in here. Just, I mean, the body is throughout, but you have uh, a chapter, you're just really focusing on the body. You start off talking about, you never told me that your mother was a cripple. You, you start with that and then you sort of go through her birth and what her childhood was like and just her body. And I feel like in fiction, a lot of times 
don't read that much about people's bodies, like how the space they take up in the world, how that interacts with their mind and their character. And I know it has been of interest to you. So just wanted to follow up on that. Yeah. Uh, you know, says this, this is absolutely autobiographical in this book. Um, it talks about uh, my mother was for 11 and a half, maybe very small, walked with canes. My father was six, three um, and over 300 pounds from, for most of my life. And I was just, I was always very aware of scale and size and weight and height. The first thing that I know about my characters is how tall they are and how tall they are in relation to other people. And it is true that in my childhood, I learned the lesson that it, it does actually matter what your body is shaped like. Like it has an effect on your life. But I also really, I do think that you know things about people's souls by thinking about their bodies. I don't think you can separate them that much. And I am always telling my my students that if they can't get their characters to do things, they should just take their hands off the keyboard for a second and close their eyes and imagine themselves in the body of the character. Just like feel like what it feels like to sit or stand where that character is. And I, I think it feels almost magical to me that when you do that, you understand them in a way you didn't a moment before. That you're not sort of thinking, oh, what's the character feeling? What's, what's the character thinking? You just sort of, if you're in their body, you sort of know. You can, you can apprehend them more directly. So what's your experience of writing in terms of having it be an embodiment, embodied experience? maybe going between your body and envisioning the characters, like what is, how does your body participate in your writing process? I was just talking to my friend, Ann Patchett, who has a book coming out next year. It's a wonderful book. She wrote it on a treadmill desk, walking at like one to two miles per hour. And she just wrote the whole thing. Um, and she was trying to convince me that I might want to try it on. I said, you know, I'm really good at sitting. I'm exceptionally, it's my, one of my athletic abilities is I can sit and I can sit for a long time. I wonder whether I would, maybe this is just like, this is a really complicated way of explaining them too lazy to write anything on a treadmill desk. But I think I wouldn't like it because I think it would be, I feel like I'm always sort of adjusting myself in my body, thinking about my characters and what they feel like and how they feel in relationship to each other. And I tried to, I used to have to do that as a second draft thing. And now it's a first draft thing that I'm sort of a, aware of them and where they are next to each other and sort of the heat off of each other's bodies and that sort of thing. Just, you know, what it means to be a human being obeying the laws of gravity on the surface of the earth. I'm wondering then if there's a time where you go back also to Elizabeth's body, where if you write a sentence that you just know is great or know is terrible, if you feel it. Yeah, I don't know. I Yeah, I think I, when I'm writing well, it's a pretty subconscious process in that I don't think that I'm analyzing whether something is good or bad as I'm writing it, other than I, I know whether something is coming fairly fluidly or not. And then when I go back, you know, I do like read sentences and think, that's really good, or you're very close. Th this book has a a higher level of things that I put in to be clever. Cause that's another thing that with good reason, sometimes my readers on my other books have said, eh, this is a bit clever. And I'm like, this is the book where I get to be clever. I can make every, 
every aphorism I want. Nobody has asked me about um, the epigraph to this book, which I think is very is me being way too clever, but it makes me super happy, which is from a from an Elizabeth Bishop poem, because um, the narrator is nameless and the uh, the epigraph is from in the waiting room, which is one of my favorite poems. The line is, but I felt it. You are an I. You are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. Why should you be one too? And so, though all the although the narrator is nameless and talks about being nameless, it's got that epigraph. And I was Mitzi. I was very happy with myself. <laughs> Just very, very happy with myself when I came up with that. But I think I I don't to answer your question about whether how much I'm in my own body. I think I probably am not that much when I'm writing that I'm sort of at the back of my brain um when I'm when I'm writing I loved this epigraph I read it like three times because it took me a while to like really understand what she was saying because it's like she's an Elizabeth but why can't she be her own right which which is interesting because there's so much too in here about language like I, I don't know if you were conscious about it but like word meanings like you, you look at words like cupboard and parlor and kiosk and grief. And, um, you know, you say in there, like the difference between like grief and other things, like you say, bereaved suggests the shadow of the missing one while grief insists you're all alone. In London, I was bereaved and haunted. You had time in here to really look at individual word meanings. It was really fun. <laughs> yeah, I'd like the cupboard. I think bedclothes is in there too as being something that I was like oh yeah and again part of it is is probably a little self-indulgent that it's it really is fun to do that but I also sort of wanted to get at the I think this might be one of those things that I believe now but was like not going on when I was writing the book that it's sort of like the nature of an inner monologue she's walking during sort of the current timeline of the book and she's by herself so she has time to think about those sorts of things. She's talking to entertain herself. Yeah, and she fits in a lot in a day. She goes on a Ferris wheel, she goes to a play, pretty packed day. Is there anything else about the book that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? I was just thinking that I was, I went back to um, London this past summer and I realized that I have misplaced the uh, London Eye, the giant Ferris wheel. I was like, oh, you cannot see it while you walk across the Millennium Bridge at all. It's much further down. But nobody's called me on it so far. Are you going to a book event in London? I might. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see whether anybody knows. It's, it might not be so specific that anybody would say, you have to fix that. In my last book, I had a short story in which I, I sent somebody the wrong direction in Boston. And it came out on oprah.com and a writer wrote to me and said why is she, does she turn onto this street to get to the Fenway that doesn't make any sense and I was so grateful and I could fix it in my book which made me very very happy oh that's nice can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer yes um and it's this seemed like a and I thought about it, it it's a Grace Paley story that I think about all the time and seems like a good fit with this book particularly. It's just the start of a, a story called A Conversation with My Father. My father is 86 years old and in bed. 
His heart, that bloody motor, is equally old and will not do certain jobs anymore. It still floods his head with brainy light. They won't let his legs carry the weight of his body around the house. Despite my metaphors, this muscle failure is not due to his old heart, he says, but to a potassium shortage. Sitting on one pillow, leaning on three, he offers last-minute advice and makes a request. I would like you to write a simple story just once more, he says. The kind Maupassant wrote, or Chekhov, the kind you used to write. Just recognizable people, and then write down what happened to them next. I say yes, why not? That's possible. I want to please him, though I don't remember writing that way. I would like to try to tell such a story, if he means the kind that begins, there was a woman, followed by plot, the absolute line between two points which I've always despised. Not for literary reasons, but because it takes all hope away. Everyone, real or invented, deserves the open destiny of life. And why did you choose that? Uh, I think about that story all the time, partially because my first teacher in graduate school, Alan Gerganis, read it aloud to us. Um, and it's uh, um, it's it's a story about fiction, but also about being with her parent as well. And there's a, I can't remember, I'm going to mess it up if I try to remember it, but there's a um, author's note in the book of stories that that uh, story was first published in that says that everybody is made up except for the father. The father is her father. And then she says his, his name. It's a very both ruthless and gentle story, which is, I think, one of the things that Paley does best. She's so generous and she does not let people off the hook. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So I'm going to uh, read from, from this book. It's sort of towards the end. For a writer, the proper end of a book is publication. I have written several books that haven't been published. Not my aim. Two of them I wrote without enough forethought with characters whose souls were goldfish harmless, picturesque, to my editor at the time turned down after years of work, which were like ships going down. For some years, I felt ashamed at the failure of these novels and didn't talk about them. Now I don't, and I do. But those books trouble me. An unpublished book is an ungrounded wire. No book I've published troubles me. I don't claim this as a sign of good character. I'm an appalling show-off, lifelong, a form of self-protection. I am an animal that puffs up and changes colors, so you'll notice that instead of my true form. I learned this from my mother, the extrovert, who knew that people will gawk and all you can do is hope to misdirect them. There are no agreed-upon safety precautions for writing. Unlike some pursuits, if you hurt yourself, it's a sign that you're doing it right. Beginners are much more likely to emerge from the process unscathed because they're not inclined to scathe themselves. Few of us are naturals at it. Why do I write? tried to get human beings on a page without, without the use of vivisection or preservatives or spiritualist props to make them seem lively still. As a writer, I claim to be modest, but I have delusions of grandeur. I call them delusions in order to sound modest. Any reason why this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a piece that is the probably the most emotionally autobiographical thing, and that it's just about me. It's not the rest of the book is the narrator talk, 
foregrounds her mother and almost everything unless she's being sort of there's a lot of you know crabby asides it is a, it's still a pretty crabby book even without the crabby voice of the of the writing manual and i think when yeah it felt it felt sort of exposing and yet it was sort of a thrill it's one of the last things that came into the book because i forgot to say this when i when it there were notes that were a writing manual the main character was not a writer there was nothing about writing in the body of the book and so anything that's about writing that's in the book came in in the revision after i knew i had to get rid of those notes and that's that's um part of it and i actually think i probably could not have written a line uh that ends that passage saying i pretend to be modest but i have delusions of grandeur i call them delusions in order to be modest like i felt like i could put that in a footnote i, I think i never would have written it in the main body of anything um, until I had you, and then I put it in. It was already written, and I could just slide it in. Right side up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> well, that um, that line in unpublished book is an ungrounded wire. It was my favorite line in the whole book. It was like, did that just come to you? As I was writing the passage. Ah, oh, beautiful. <laughs> And that was an, and I did sort of think because it was. I do have several books that I, I uh, that I've never published, and I used to. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have mentioned them. Um, and I'm like, what the heck? It's just your narrator. Yeah. Where do you write? I almost always write in my campus office, which is where I am right now, uh, and that's partially so that I don't get distracted and wander off in my house and do something else. Uh, though I've, as I've gotten older, I've I've gotten good at um, sort of if I'm traveling with my family, getting up early and finding a spot in the house that I can get some work done. I'm much more flexible than I used to be. I have no uh, workspace at in my house though, so I almost never am writing fiction at my house. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? I yeah, it's possible that I had the exact same answer uh, when I talked to you about um souvenir museum which is that i get up really early and swim at barton springs in the center of austin did it this morning as a matter of fact and uh it is it is the thing i like most about austin um it never gets old it's a very beautiful spring fed swimming pool at the center of the of the city who do you show your work to first to get feedback my husband is is also a writer named Edward Carey, um, and he's a wonderful reader, and he is the first person I show my work to. And then pretty soon afterwards, I show it to Paula Sicky and Patchett, um, my uh, agent, Henry Dunow. I definitely, I show people the book one at a time. I'm not one of those people who sends out a book to a, a bunch of people at one time. For some reason, I can't. That seems peculiar to me, even though... It suits a lot of people really well, but it's, yeah, one one reader and the book at a time. And how have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> Badly. <laughs> Actually, mostly it is truly such an annoying thing that writing teachers say, and yet it's also true, that rejection is really good for you, that you somehow get better work done thinking, I'll show them. Uh, and so I do try to put any irritated energy back into actually working. And what is your favorite word? 
So I knew you were going to ask me this question. And I was driving with my son, Gus, and said that I I had to think about what my favorite word was, because otherwise I would burst out and say, underpants, um, or like just not have it. Having thought about it, although then I began to think about the word underpants, which is one of my favorite words, um, in, in the same way that that like cupboard is. I I like those sort of those words you don't notice are like really bizarrely literal, like underpants, the pants you wear under your other pants, and it's a funny word, um, but it's probably not my favorite word. And for a while, I was thinking I always say eponymous, which I really like, or posthumous which I also like, but I don't think they're my favorite words. Um, I was thinking of luggage, which is another word that like, if you think about it, like like luggage, like the quantity of things you lug, I find really lovely, but I landed on idiosyncratic, which is a word that I really love. And I use it as a term of praise for all sorts of things. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. It's been so nice. If you like today's show with Elizabeth McCracken, author of the novel, The Hero of This Book, check out my two previous interviews with her on her short story collections, Thunderstruck and Other Stories, and The Souvenir Museum. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 375 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Peter Orner, Elizabeth Strout, and Katie Standifer. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.